Since its emergence in Wuhan, China late last year, the novel coronavirus, or what we now call COVID-19, has continued to sweep the globe. We're bracing in America for it to impact our cities and communities in waves. And we're social distancing in an attempt to reduce transmission, and we're sheltering in place in the most at-risk cities and communities. But in whatever way, this virus is here, and it's not going away. So we're living in a new normal. And as we grapple with how best to mitigate the deadly consequences of this new normal, our frontline physicians and medical personnel are facing life and death decisions about how to deliver the best care possible given limited resources and sometimes non-existent essential resources at times of great need. And there are a host of ethical questions that must be navigated to ensure we don't needlessly sacrifice human lives or surrender to inhumane forms of rationing or denial of treatment or simply an attitude of cultural indifference to those who are most vulnerable. Dr. Aaron Kiriati stands at the intersection of these issues and is one of America's frontline physicians confronting this crisis. Dr. Kiriati is director of the medical ethics program at UCI Health in Southern California and serves as chairman of the Medical Ethics Committee at UCI Hospital and at the California Department of State Hospitals. Dr. Kiriati graduated from the University of Notre Dame in philosophy and pre-medical sciences and earned his MD from Georgetown University. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. I am Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Aaron Kiriati. Doctor, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be with you. I'm glad we're discussing this important issue today. Awesome. Well, so yeah, Dr. Kiriati, uh, let's just start off by hearing about uh, you know, some of your work and some of your experience so far in California as we confront this crisis. Sure. So what UCI, where I work, and most of the hospitals in California are doing at this point is trying to expand what we call our surge capacity. So the number of ventilators that we have on hand, the number of intensive care units, uh, and those important ICU beds that we have available. So we're doing things like canceling all elective surgeries, for example, and then converting many of those surgical operating rooms to ICU beds with ventilators since anesthesiologists uh, obviously use ventilators for surgeries. We're trying to get as many extra ventilators as we can from various county or federal sources, the stockpiles that are, that are available. And we're getting very creative with personnel, too, because one of the shortages that hospitals worry about is not just equipment like ventilators or beds, but personnel, right? If too many frontline ICU physicians or nurses or respiratory therapists get sick all at once, then no matter how many ventilators we have available, we're not going to be able to care for those critically ill patients that are desperately in need of, of high-level hospital care. So in a sense, internally, we're trying to flatten our own curve, so to speak, by not exposing too many physicians or nurses all at once. So we have kind of skeleton crew schedules to handle our routine day-to-day services, maybe fewer uh, doctors and nurses on service at once covering more patients or perhaps for a longer period of time so that if they get sick, we have folks on reserves. We're even training up uh, physicians that don't normally work in ICU settings to be available to work in those settings to manage ventilators under the supervision of intensive care specialists. So there's various staffing models that we've developed here and at other hospitals where perhaps four physicians who ordinarily work in other settings will be supervised by one intensive care specialist on, on managing patients. So we're, we're doing everything that we can to prepare our surge capacity for a large influx of coronavirus cases. My role as a medical ethicist is to hope for the best, hope that our surge capacity is going to be adequate for patient needs, 
but also to plan for the worst. So I've been working around the clock the last few weeks on mapping out sort of worst case scenario uh, options. What happens if, in spite of our best efforts, we or other hospitals in California exceed that surge capacity? We get more patients in our emergency room or in our hospital that require ventilator level care, ICU level care, and we don't have enough ventilators either here or at regional hospitals where we can transfer folks to treat all of them. What do we do in those circumstances? How do we take the resources that we have at hand and try to do as much good as we can for as many people as we can, but do that in a way, in a way that is just and equitable and fair? Do that in a way that takes account of the needs of people with various vulnerabilities, whether those be access to care, whether those be disabilities that make it harder for them to access medical care, or that, that might subject them to unjust forms of discrimination during these times of, of crises. So to that end, I've been working with a, a first-rate team of uh, folks here at UCI on our ethics committee that I work with, uh, critical care physicians, nurses, uh, and, and other medical professionals to try to come up with our own uh, internal hospital pandemic triage plan. But I've also been working with representatives from the other five University of California hospitals at the, at, at the sort of UC office of the president level to come up with policies and procedures for pandemic triage that will apply to the entire University of California system. And that has proven to be a, a very challenging enterprise. Uh, we have a draft policy that's being looked at uh, currently by University of California leadership, and we hope to have uh, published and public and ready to go sometime next week, if all goes well. And, uh, and so I've been knee deep in I, I, what I would say are very challenging questions about how to distrib distribute and allocate scarce resources in a time of crisis. Many other states are looking at these issues. Some states had previously published guidelines on, the, uh, on these issues. Some of those guidelines were helpful in our own work. Some of those guidelines had provisions that, that we decided we wanted to, to get away from in the interest of, of maintaining equity, in the interest of maintaining a a system that we thought was more fair and more just. But but I can say that work has been really challenging. It's the kind of thing that keeps many of us uh, awake at night, right? Wondering if, uh, if the, the guidelines and the triage protocol that we have developed is in fact going to prove uh, effective in saving as many lives as we can and is, is going to do that, very importantly, in a way that maintains respect for the moral equality and the equal intrinsic human dignity of every human person. You know, Tom, there's, as I think many, many of our listeners are aware, there's a danger in devising these protocols of falling into a kind of crass utilitarianism, a kind of a, a consequentialist view of ethics that reduces people to a number uh, that starts making judgments about the person's uh, quality of life before they got sick with coronavirus, that looks at, at factors like, well, is this person cognitively impaired because of, of some form of, of serious cognitive disability? Uh, should, should something like that factor into triage or factor into how we allocate ventilators. And uh, to our, uh, to, I, I'd like to give credit to our group here at the University of California um, in terms of, uh, we, you know, we, I think we definitely had a critical mass of folks that were keenly interested in making sure that we paid attention to the possibility of disability-related discrimination, uh, the possibility of age-related discrimination, and that we drafted uh, policies and protocols that, that rather than looking at so-called quality of life judgments that could very easily be, be biased in ways that are unjust and unfair to those who are marginalized or vulnerable, uh, 
Um, I, I, I believe that once once our protocol is published, folks are going to see that um, that we did we did as best we could to try to try to maintain a system that was fair and just and respected the moral equality of all individuals, regardless of of uh, conditions that weren't directly, let's say, directly relevant to their acute prognosis. The, the central question, I think, in making these allocation decisions is what in the patient's current condition is directly relevant to surviving this acute episode, right? So, so the, the central moral principle that I think most ethicists agree upon, although perhaps they, they come to this uh, in different ways, is let's do as much good as we can given the constraints that we have, right? And a shorthand way of thinking about this is save as many lives as possible. But then when you drill down, uh, the, the devil is in the details, so to speak. So are we, are we thinking about that in terms of saving lives during this acute episode? Are we thinking about this in terms of, you know, how many of these patients will survive this hospitalization or will survive the acute illness for which they need a ventilator? So my way of thinking, that's, that's the best way to think about this, right? I think we start running into a lot of moral and uh, ethical difficulties when we cast this in terms of the number of uh, life years saved, right? The, the idea that we should think not only about short-term prognosis, but about five-year pro- five prognosis or 10-year or prognosis, which, first of all, gets very, very muddy. It's, it's hard for physicians to make those kind of predictions in, in any accurate way. It's challenging enough to make acute predictions, but we're, critical care physicians are pretty good, I would say. At, at judging, at least statistically speaking, which patients are going to survive an acute hospitalization, right? But once we get once we get beyond a few days to a few weeks to, to maybe a couple of months, our prognostic abil- abilities become very very hazy, and uh, and then we begin, I think, going down a potential slippery slope of making judgments not on relevant medical factors but on, on factors related to our potentially biased judgments of a person's quality of life. Um, if they have a disability that causes them to be cognitively impaired or visually impaired or hearing impaired uh, or mobility impaired in some way, we may make the judgment, well, that a life like that is, is not worth living or less worth living than a young, hale, healthy individuals might be. And of course, we know from uh, folks that that are strong advocates in the disability community for equal rights. We know that they don't see their lives in that way; that they are subject fairly routinely to these kinds of unjust and unfair judgments about the quality of their life uh, that they have to push back against constantly. And so, I think in in devising these kinds of triage protocols, it's very important for us to be keenly aware of the concerns of the disability community, keenly aware of issues related to possible age discrimination so that we don't engage in unjust forms of discrimination where the, the strong or the smart or the, or the healthy uh, end up prioritizing themselves over those who are weaker or more vulnerable. That, that creates a a society that creates a, um, a system of distributive justice, which I think is is a place that we don't want to live. It's a direction that we as a society are in danger of going already before this crisis. And um, it's important for us that a pandemic crisis like this doesn't exacerbate those kinds of crass uh, utilitarian uh, understandings of, of the human person. We have to we have to maintain clearly in our sights the, the, the moral equality and the equal dignity that, uh, that each human being deserves, regardless of their level of disability or their age or their socioeconomic status and, and so forth. Yeah, it's a powerful thing. I think, you know, as we look at the extent of this 
virus and the health crisis that it's causing, you know, uh, some of the early reports out of um, out of Italy, you know, especially northern Italy, I think raised a lot of people's eyebrows because um, you saw, you know, and it's, it's always tough in these situations. These are in some sense wartime type situations and there's sort of a fog, a haze uh, where, you know, it's like what what is fact versus what is rumor, you know, weighing all those things. Um, but, you know, reports out of Italy that, uh, you know, maybe they were just drawing a hard line to say, you know, well, if you're over 60 or 55 or whatever, um, then you're just not getting treatment. You know, um, we saw, you know, footage again, uh, whether it's verified, we don't necessarily know, but, you know, of, of uh, elderly women in Spain uh, kind of being put out on the sidewalks uh, in front of hospitals and, you know, uh, allegedly um, just being told, you know, sorry, we're going to we're going to prioritize younger uh, patients or uh, people who maybe have a quality of life years or what have you. Um, and of course, we don't really have any idea what the protocols were, as far as I know, uh, in Wuhan, um, you know, where this all started. Uh, that's kind of there's just a, a kind of a, a curtain over over what happened there or what is happening there. We don't even know really how many deaths have occurred um, in China as a result of this. I think the sort of farcical number we've been given is like 2,500 or something, which is just like statistically impossible, I think. Um, That's right. Yeah. But yeah, (laughs) you know, so it's tough as as we see all these rumors, you know, to to try to sort out fact from fiction, I guess is my point. And I think so the the things you're you're pointing out, especially in terms of quality of life years, um, that's what that is, right? That's that risk of sort of saying, well, you know, sort of you are disabled in some way, you are older than this other patient. So sort of just as a de facto practice, you get put in the back of the line. That's right. I think some of the reports out of Italy that there were absolute age cutoffs in terms of their triage decisions are probably credible. And one of the reasons to believe that they're credible is that a sort of official medical association there, basically the Association of Critical Care Physicians in Italy, published their own official guidelines on triage that are now translated into English, so they're available for us to read. And one of the provisions in those guidelines had to do with an age cutoff of of 70 years. Those above 70 years were put into a triage category where really they weren't considered candidates for ventilators. Now, the issue of age related to COVID is a little bit tricky because if you believe that the early uh, medical data out of China, and it it remains to be seen whether this is going to be confirmed or not. But at least early data suggested that those in the 65 to 69 age group were at elevated risk for mortality, and those 70 above were at even more elevated risk for mortality. So the worst outcomes seem to be in some ways tied to age. And even if you controlled for other co-occurring medical conditions, it appeared that age might be an independent risk factor for mortality. But, and I think there's an important caveat here, so, so if, if age, independent of other uh, co-occurring conditions, is in fact an independent risk factor for mortality, it might be useful for prognosis, for deciding who's going to benefit most from a ventilator. But there's some qualifications here. The first is, even if that turns out to be the case, and, and subsequent data bears that out, I think it's still a dangerous precedent to set an absolute age criteria cutoff. What you need to do is you need to take age and you need to put it into a context of other risk factors. With triage, we're always looking for shortcuts because on the ground, we have to acknowledge the difficulties on the ground. You're you're trying to triage potentially 200 patients in an emergency room that may need a ventilator. And you need some some efficient way to medically assess all of them. So this is very, very difficult. We, 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 have to, we have to acknowledge the pressures on the system to come up with some way of deciding who's going to benefit most. And let's understand ventilators. triage when we're talking about it, it refers to what as a, as a medical practice? So it, it refers to uh, making a, a medical judgment. And in some sense, these are all, always also ethical judgment about who's going to benefit most from a limited resource and putting people into various categories that, you know, if we have 20 ventilators to allocate, maybe there's 10 people in category A that stand the best chance of of surviving this episode and 20 people in category B 
uh, who are sort of the next level down in terms of prognosis. So let's say all the patients in that scenario in category A are going to get a ventilator. Only half of the patients in category B are going to get a ventilator. And so we have to, we have to do a random lottery or we have to find some other tie-breaking method of, of taking the 10 remaining ventilators for 20 people and deciding which half of those individuals are going to get ventilators. So we have to acknowledge up front, this is, this is very difficult, okay? This is a really, really, really hard problem, uh, ethically speaking. And so there, there's going to be a temptation to want to take shortcuts and do things like absolute age criteria cutoffs. But, but I think a better method would be to take age, if it's an independent risk factor, and put it in the context of other risk factors and triage patients according to strict clinical criteria. Now, within that, some people have raised the question, well, should we give critical workers a nudge, right? Should we give physicians or nurses who are treating coronavirus a nudge? And there's, there's kind of three sort of ethical arguments that you might consider uh, in, in thinking about that possibility. One is, well, these, these individuals are placing themselves at higher risk, and they deserve some sort of reciprocity or reward for their efforts of, of trying to save lives and putting themselves at risk of contracting the virus uh, by treating other people who are infected. The second argument is a sort of morale argument, right? It, it, doctors and nurses might might be at risk of, of not wanting to come to work anymore if they see their coworker getting sick and then not getting some sort of priority nudge, uh, at least a tie-breaking nudge within, within triage prognostic categories uh, for, for a ventilator or another scarce resource. And the third argument is, um, is more strictly going back to that, that fundamental criteria of save as many lives as possible. Well, gee, if we save a critical care physician and we save them on time to get healthy and get back into the fray and start treating patients again, maybe that's going to have a multiplier effect on the overall right. number of lives saved. So, so our group at the University of California looked at this issue carefully and we're we're still working with UC leadership uh, on whether or not there's going to be priority for critical care workers. I, I can't comment on that until our guidelines are are published. But just uh, not speaking on on behalf of my institution or the University of California, I can say my own view of this is that the the only argument at the end of the day that really works for this is the multiplier effect. So, so I, I like the idea of reciprocity sounds nice to me as a physician, but but I can see the ways in which it might be self serving or biased. I mean, firefighters take on elevated risks when they sign on for that job. They're the people who run into burning buildings when other people are running the other direction. And, and likewise, physicians and nurses have some job-related risks that are, that are simply part of the job, part of the oath that we take to care for, for sick people. So while that, that might be a nice idea, and I, I appreciate the sort of gratitude that it, it expresses, um, ultimately, I, I think we can get into some some unfair and self-serving uh, sorts of uh, uh, issues if we lean on that too heavily. Now, the uh, the morale issue and the in the, the the idea of um, the idea of the multiplier effect, I think, are more ethically justifiable, right? Because at a certain point, we're going to run out of if too many physicians get sick. We're going to run out of people to care for other patients, and that could have a really devastating effect on our ability to, to save lives. So, so the issue of critical workers and who counts as a critical worker, you know, if, if physicians and nurses get a nudge, how about other infrastructure, uh, folks like firefighters and police officers and EMTs. So, so it's a really, it's a really difficult question to know how to draw the line around those folks. If you draw it too large, you include so many people that the idea of a priority nudge becomes sort of meaningless. If you draw it too narrow, you exclude folks who are just as important for control of the pandemic as the people that you included in that group. So it's it's a really tricky problem, practically speaking, if you're going to nudge uh, critical workers in, in triage priority to know exactly how to do that. Uh, there's also important questions about going back to that that idea of the multiplier effect. What about a nudge for pregnant women? Um, I was an advocate for that for that idea. If you if you save this woman, you 
you potentially, if she's healthy enough, stays healthy enough to deliver uh, a healthy baby, then you save two lives rather than one. So I think you can make a strong case uh, for the multiplier effect in terms of pregnant women. And, and interestingly, you can, even in a pluralistic society where we may not agree on the question of of the moral status of prenatal life, I think you can still make a multiplier effect that if we get this woman healthy enough to, to bring her baby to, to viability and deliver, uh, the multiplier effect still obtains at, at some time in the short-term future. So we had some very interesting conversations about a nudge for, for pregnant women. And again, I'm not going to comment on our own guidelines until they're published, but, sure. uh, but I thought it was uh, that was that was an important consideration, and a couple of states already have published guidelines that do give a priority nudge to to pregnant women, or at least pregnant women at a certain stage of uh, at a certain gestational age of of pregnancy. Yeah, you know, it's funny as you're describing these things. It's clear to me. It's you know, it sure sounds like you guys are considering these issues in good faith. Um, you know, these are serious and complex issues: ethical, medical, resource based, everything. And, you know, it reminds me of, of something, you know, we talk about uh, assisted suicide, you know, we call suicide by physician at Americans United for Life. And, you know, Carter Sneed and others have kind of commented on the, the kind of warping of our, of our kind of moral vocabulary on some of these issues. Because when it comes to something like assisted suicide, uh, you know, I think there's a, 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 one of the biggest risks of it beyond the actual risk to the patient uh, themselves is what it can do to the perceived authority of our physicians, our medical experts. You know, and Carter Sneed has kind of joked about this in a, gr a grim way of saying, you know, it's like advocates of assisted suicide have pointed to the medical profession and said, hey, look, that profession, people really trust them. Well, we should, because they're so trusted, we should make them be the ones to, uh, you know, administer and to control um, these sort of fatal substances for suicide. Um, why? Because they're so trusted. And it's like, well, what's right. the effect of that, though, long-term? The effect is that the trust corrodes because how many people now have an experience of a physician, um, you know, at least winking at, if not agreeing with, some of these things you're talking about, yeah, utilitarian attitude or a quality-of-life attitude that says, you know, yeah, in certain states, for instance, or certain countries now, where, you know, yeah, you may not even uh, have a terminal condition. You may not be dying. Um, but because, you know, your quality of life is, is not even necessarily worse, per se, but just different than it was years ago, uh, sure, we'll allow you access to suicide. And so I think, you know, I'm hearing that as, a, as an issue kind of in the back of my mind as you're describing this, because I think it's more important now than ever that we're able to trust our physicians and our medical experts. Right. And I think we're right. in this cultural moment where that's increasingly difficult for a lot of folks. Right. No, I think that's a very good point. Look, Carter is a is a friend of mine, um, and I think the the argument he's articulating there is a very important one. And as it happens, that's more or less the same argument that is made by the American Medical Association um, and by the by the World Medical Association in their official statements and positions on assisted suicide, both of which were reaffirmed uh, last year. And, and what they say is, although physician-assisted suicide has been accepted uh, in some countries and in some states in the United States, uh, they, these professional uh, bodies of physicians have maintained their historical position against assisted suicide for a couple of reasons. And one of the key reasons that, that both of these uh, professional bodies articulate is precisely this issue of trust. Right, maintaining the public's trust that the physician will always use his knowledge and skills only for the purpose of pursuing health and healing. As it happens, this is the same reason that the American Medical Association uh, in their code of medical ethics is opposed to physicians' participation in capital punishment. The, the AMA doesn't take an official position on the morality of capital punishment itself or, you know, the political position on capital punishment itself. And it doesn't require its members to have a particular position on capital punishment. What it says is as a physician, qua physician, you cannot participate in something like this where you are using your knowledge of pharmacology or physiology to take a life rather than to, rather than to heal. 
And so if you look at the AMA's position on capital punishment, if you look at the AMA's position on physician participation in, in torture or enhanced interrogation, or if you look at their position on assisted suicide, you see the same fundamental argument running through all three of those positions, that medicine needs to aim at health healing and, uh, and, and cure of illness, and using our knowledge and skills as physicians for any other purpose, including taking a life uh, or ending a life, is something that risks undermining the trust that patients and the general public have in physicians. And I think that argument is, is cogent. I think it's very important. Uh, I think we see evidence in places where uh, euthanasia or assisted suicide is practiced of uh, the public's trust in physicians or in the healthcare system being undermined. And when it comes to pandemic triage, I think it's very important for us to make clear the distinction between what we're talking about <clears throat> with pandemic triage and euthanasia or assisted suicide. Some of the headlines describing pandemic triage protocols have described them in terms of physicians deciding, quote, who lives and who dies. Right. And I, I want to make it clear to our listeners that that is emphatically not what we're doing with pandemic triage. We are not deciding between who lives and who dies. We are deciding in a crisis situation where there are scarce resources, where it's just physically impossible for us to save everyone, we are deciding how to do as much good as we can. We are deciding how to allocate those scarce resources in a way that we medically benefit as many people as we can. We are not deciding who lives and who dies. We are doing two other important things at the same time. One is we cannot, regardless of how constrained we are in terms of ventilators or other scarce critical resources, we cannot abandon any patients. We cannot leave patients out on the street. We have to expand our palliative care services. We have to expand our next best level of care services. Okay, you can't get a ventilator. How can we get you a high-flow nasal cannula oxygen system so that even if we can't give you what we might have given you under non-pandemic triage circumstances, under non-crisis circumstances, we can't give you the ventilator right now, but we're going to give you the the next best level of medical care that we can de devise. We're going we're gonna to come up with creative solutions to expand our resources. We're going to give you the best palliative care that we can offer if you're in danger of death or if you're in a situation in which you're uncomfortable due to respiratory symptoms, right? We, we can never abandon patients no matter how dire the circumstances are. The other thing that we have to do in these circumstances is we have to push on the back end on the supply chain and make it clear to the public, to those who are in position, uh, positions of ramping up ventilator pr production, that this situation of pandemic triage is intolerable, right? We cannot stay in these circumstances one single hour longer than is absolutely necessary. We have to, we have to redouble our efforts on the back end to do everything that we can to ramp up our production and our access to that critical resource that we're now short of because we, we maintain our position that we want to give each and every patient the best care possible. And we want to make possible better care for everybody. Right? So, there's a there's a danger here of of kind of utilitarian opportunity opportunists grasping at this situation, saying, "See, doctors are deciding who lives and who dies. Uh, doctors are um, doctors are uh, making sort of life and death decisions that are that are impacting us, and and they're by by those decisions they're weeding out the unfit, a sort of you know right." A sort of cruel social Darwinist uh, view of, of what's going on. And we have to say, no, that's absolutely not what's going on here. We're doing as much good as we can, given our constraints and given our limitations, which, uh, truth be told, doctors do that on some level every day. 
Um, you know, healthcare resources are not infinite. We do the best with what we have at hand for as many people as we can all the time. It's just that these pandemic triage type situations bring bring that reality into more vivid relief for us, I think, Tom. And and so we're we're absolutely not doing what what people do when they when they advocate for euthanasia or doctor assisted suicide. This is entirely different from what we're talking about with those issues. We're doing as much as we can for as many people as we can. We are if if our central ethical criteria is, is save as many lives as possible, we're also doing that within ethical constraints that remind us and ensure that we're respecting the equal dignity of every human being, that we're doing this in a way that is fair and just, that we are taking account of the needs of the vulnerable and the disabled, and that we are also making it clear that if we have to triage, we we need to we need to push with whatever creative social and political means we have at hand to get the best resources available to as many people as as we can. I think if we if we do that uh, in in these crisis circumstances, we can reaffirm the the fundamental principles of medical ethics, which are, which are beneficence, right? Do as much good as we can. Non-maleficence is sort of jargony way of saying, do no, <laughs> first, do no harm, or at least minimize the harms that are done. Respecting human equality, respecting human dignity, and, and always practicing the allocation, allocation of resources, always practicing the virtue of, of justice. I think those things are central and those principles can't be abandoned even under a crisis. And I think if we do that, then medicine is going to come through this with those central values and central principles enhanced rather than undermined. Um, but if we, if we fall into a kind of crass utilitarian calculus or a, a, a sort of a cruel social Darwinistic uh, method of, of caring for people under these circumstances, then, then I worry that those fundamental principles of medical ethics might be undermined. So, so I, I think there are two paths available to us now. And I, I have to say I'm pleased with, with what I've seen from my fellow physicians is that I, I think all of us are here because we want to help people. All of us are, are still going to work every day, even though that puts us and puts our families at enhanced risk of, of infection from COVID. All of us are doing this because we want to care for the patients that are, that are coming our way. Um, I don't, I look around my own institution. I don't see anyone who's interested in, in abandoning people during this crisis. I don't see anyone who's interested in, um, in allocating scarce resources. All of us want to prepare precisely so that we don't find ourselves in that worst case scenario situation. And, and I have to say, I, th I think we've done a pretty good job so far of that. I'm cautiously optimistic that um, that we may not here in California get to the get to the place where we have to allocate ventilators. I, I hope that all of the ethics work that we've done in that regard uh, will at best be a theoretical exercise, or, or perhaps you know preparing for some future pandemic, uh, so that we're. Uh, we're, we're more ready to go next time around and not caught flat footed if we have to if we have to deal with something like this or, you know, heaven forbid, something even worse. Yeah, it's amazing as we look at this, you know, there was a, a report, uh, I think it was a 2005 um, U.S. government report uh, that was kind of looking at at uh, pandemic uh, readiness, more or less. And, uh, you know, one of the findings of it, again, this is 15 years ago, was saying, you know, if the U.S. were to confront uh, a crisis on the scale of, of the Spanish flu, you know, that, that uh, was global in scale, you know, for roughly three years, uh, 1918 through 1920, that the U.S. would need, based on its population at that point, something like, um, you know, 750,000 ventilators. And, you know, the Washington Post piece was contrasting that with, you know, that they're, you know, sort of estimating roughly maybe 160-ish thousand ventilators in the U.S. today. And, of course, Many of, of that number are actually they're in use already. They're not they're not sitting in a stockpile or a warehouse. 
Uh, and so, you know, not to say that COVID um, will become Spanish flu level, but the point is that, you know, we foresaw 15 plus years ago now that for a crisis, um, even of a fraction of the scale of the Spanish flu, we would need far more than we had, and yet we didn't yeah. prepare. And so this is, this is kind of a political question, maybe more than a medical question, um, but do you think in this moment that there's going to be a shift where we, we get more serious? Because as we're having these debates about healthcare and medicine, you know, on, on one side, we tend to hear things like, you know, uh, sort of uh, Jeremiah's against rationing, um, as if we live in a world of, of, of material superabundance and there's no need to make right. exactly what we're talking about, ethical qu- distinctions yeah. and ethical judgments about how to allocate scarce resources. Rationing is a fact of life. You go to a CVS, you go yeah. to a Walgreens to pick up something, they might have it, they might not. Um, That's right. And, you know, then on the other side uh, of, of the political debates, we sometimes hear, well, if we can just pass the right sort of national policy um, concerning medicine, then everyone will get the best care in the world uh, for free. And, you know, whatever the cost of that is, it, it's not possible. Both, both are pursuing sort of the same utopianism, right, which is that we can have a world of material abundance without cost. That's right. Um, yeah. No, I, I think, I mean, I, I think this COVID pandemic is, is a wake up call on a lot of fronts. First and foremost, it reminds us of our fragility and of the, of the exquisite kind of power on the one hand and fragility on the other hand of our biological ecosystem of what, of which human beings are a part. Uh, I mean, this tiny microscopic, not even you know, alive quasi quasi <laughs> organismal organism. It's just thrown the whole world into, into chaos in the last weeks to, to months, which is just amazing to watch and tinkering with the, the virus's uh, characteristics just slightly could produce something that as terrifying as this thought is, is far worse. So the reproductive rate of coronavirus seems to be somewhere between one and three and depends on the circumstances and, you know, uh, and, and other factors that can change over time. But we know that there are other viruses out there with that are far more virulent in, in, in medical terminology that have a reproductive rate of uh, 16 to 18 is the reproductive rate of measles, for example, uh, that one person has the potential, one person with measles has the potential to infect you know, a, a dozen or more other people rather than just one or two other individuals. So you get a, a, a SARS coronavirus like, like virus that has a higher reproductive rate. Um, the, the, the potential for a p- pandemic like this could be potentially far worse. You get a mortality rate that is two or three times as high as what we're seeing for coronavirus, not as high as, as SARS that killed people too quickly. So it didn't have time to spread, but you get, you get that, that really dangerous, uh, balance between, um, between reproducibility and, and mortality, you know, we could be in really bad shape. So, so our ability to completely control pandemics is limited. That's not a happy thought to many people who think science has the solution to all of our problems, right? And if we, if we just, you know, get better funding for science uh, or better funding for public health, something like this will never happen again. That's naive. I'm sorry to say it. Uh, I don't mean to cause even more distress or anxiety for the people already out there. There's there's sort of like an Oedipal thing to this in some degree. It's like the way we talk about science as a sort of an anthropomorphized thing walking around. It's like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the that Oedipal, like, well, mom will fix it attitude. And it's like, well. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But look, on the other hand, on the other hand, we could have done a much, it's, it's absolutely clear to me that we could have not very, with not very much difficulty, could have done a much easier job of preparing for a pandemic like this. Something like COVID-19 was foreseeable. Many people did foresee it. In my own state of California, when, when Schwarzenegger was governor, he became very concerned about a disaster uh, preparation after Hurricane Katrina, and he saw what happened in New Orleans. And he actually, uh, the legislature, and, and he signed a bill that that in California built up a very robust stock, stockpile of ventilators, N95 masks, mobile hospitals wow. that were that were really impressive. Actually, I. 
you know, not just cots and sort of basic care, but real ICU level care in these, in these mobile hospitals. And then 2009 hit and the budget tightened up in California and, uh, the, the five or 6 million that it took to maintain this thing every year was cut. And this, this stockpile, which was designed precisely for a flu pandemic would have been very useful for the coronavirus pandemic was slowly dismantled over time. There was a, there was a, a kind of pull your hair out piece of investigative reporting <laughs> in the Los Angeles Times a few weeks ago that was describing this and trying to figure out what happened to the stockpile. It was literally like sold on eBay and given away and sold to private uh, private hospitals and so forth. And it's, this whole thing more or less disappeared within within a few years uh, because a, a very, very small fraction of the state's overall budget was not allocated for its maintenance. So you know, it's hard for us to think about a crisis when we're not in one, just psychologically speaking. But um, uh, one hates to call something like this that has already killed so many people and will kill many, many more. Hard to hard to call this a warning shot across the bow because sure. it's it's clearly it's a tragedy. It's it's far far more than just a warning shot. But when the dust settles and when we get through the worst of this pandemic. Uh, Hopefully, this will be a sobering reminder that that we need to do a lot more to prepare for something like this. I mean, it's it's absolutely unconscionable and infuriating that one of the shortages we are facing are masks, personal protective equipment, uh, masks that cost 23 cents a piece, uh, gloves that cost pennies that hospitals are running short of these, that there wasn't a massive stockpile of billions of these somewhere in a, in a warehouse. In Nebraska, in Kansas yeah. That could be, <laughs> exactly. You know, overnighted to the four corners. I mean, there's, you know, we have, we have million-dollar MRI machines. We have all kinds of high-tech resources available at our hospitals. We spend enormous amounts of money on healthcare, care. Uh, and yet, somehow, we don't have enough nasal swabs to test for uh, to test for something like uh, influenza or coronavirus. It's just absolute madness. It's crazy. So I, I used the metaphor earlier in our conversation about, you know, healthcare workers being like firefighters who sign on to run into burning buildings. But look, and, and all of that is true, but, but just as firefighters didn't sign on to run into burning buildings in their boxer shorts right. or, their, or their underwear, their swim trunks, you know, uh, we we physicians and nurses didn't sign up to treat patients with infectious diseases without masks and and goggles and gowns and gloves. I mean, so it's it's absolutely, in to my mind, intolerable and unconscionable that um, that there are physicians right now in New York, for example treating patients with this illness without access to basic personal protective equipment. This is, this is the kind of thing that in a, in a prosperous country like ours should absolutely never, ever happen again. Um, you know, we wouldn't expect firefighters to be without basic equipment to fight fires. We shouldn't, uh, and to protect, try to protect themselves to some degree, uh, you know, from the ravages of fires when they're doing their job. Uh, we should never again expect physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists and 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 you know uh, environmental uh, uh, janitors who clean clean the environment at our hospitals to be without basic personal protective equipment. So, so I do hope that we can be realistic about um, you know human fragility and about the fact that we can't control. All natural disasters will never be completely prepared for every possible pandemic on the one hand. But look, on the other hand, we can do a much better job in the future of making sure we're ready for something like this than, 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 we've, done, uh, than we've done so far. So I, I hope this can be a sobering reminder that the time to prepare for things like this is before, before they happen. And look, you know, a, a quick view of history shows us that pandemics occur about every hundred years. We have something like this. And, and so this, this rhetoric that coronavirus is unprecedented in human history and we're seeing something, no, it's not yeah. unprecedented. We're seeing something that's unprecedented in our lifetimes, but you mentioned the Spanish flu. Um, this is 
this is definitely not unprecedented in human history. It's a regular sort of natural occurrence of the biological ecosystem. And it's something that human beings have faced, um, you know, throughout the, the centuries of recorded human history, going back as, as far back as, as we can see and as far back as we have written evidence for this sort of thing. So this is something that shouldn't have surprised us in the way that, that it did. It's something that I think we could have done a much better job of preparing for. And I, I trust that, um, that in, in coming decades, we'll be more prepared for, for something like this because of the, the really tragic and, and awful experience uh, that the world is currently going through. Look, I'm, you know, I'm an advocate for science. I'm a physician. I'm, I'm passionate about science, and I see the great good that it can do. Um, but these are also social and political issues. Science is not going to solve all of these problems. And, um, and e even politics, I think all of us are, I think, hopefully realistic and sober enough to know that politics ultimately cannot solve all of our problems or control everything. So, so a, a balanced and sober understanding that, um, that uh, you know, we have to do the best we can to prepare. On the other hand, we can look to, to guides like Viktor Frankl to think about, you know, our resilience and what do we do in the face of the inevitable suffering that will come at us because of just the nature of human life and the nature of, of social existence. So, look, I really appreciated this conversation. It was, uh, it was great, great speaking with you. Thank you so much for making the time, Dr. Curiati, and uh, good luck on the front lines. Thank you for your service in that. Thanks, Tom. All right, if you enjoyed today's show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. Rate the show and leave a review. Message a friend. Let them know you've discovered life, liberty, and law. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, drop us an email at life at AUL.org. I'm Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.